Okay, so um, I want to talk to you today about the International uh, Labour Organization. I'm, I'm very grateful to get an opportunity to talk about the International Labour Organization at all, um, because nobody, nobody really cares about the ILO, I'm afraid. Um, international lawyers don't care about the ILO because they think it's about labor law. Human rights lawyers don't care because they also think it's about labor law, which they don't think is about human rights, which is always a puzzle. Um, trade lawyers definitely don't care, but then they don't care about anything other than trade, so that's straightforward. Labor lawyers really do care. We do care. We love this organization. But um, those of us in developed countries are pretty complacent um, we figure that we do all of, all of this stuff anyway, so we don't need to worry too much about the ILO. And in developing countries, I think there's been a real sense that um, the ILO is, is kind of troublesome. It's going to impose standards that are going to be difficult for, for people to live up to. So um, what I want to do today is to tell you a little bit, if my voice will hold up, um, about what the ILO actually does and to argue that governments in particular would do well to, to take it more seriously. So the ILO is one of the oldest international organizations. It was founded in 1919 as part of the post-World War I settlement. Um, and the post-war context helped to shape its goals. Um, that's the opening phrase in the Constitution. Universal and lasting peace can be established only if it's based on social justice. And that's my kind of peg on which I'm hanging this talk. I know that this center specializes in security, and I, I suppose my reason for wanting to tell you about the ILO is that I think um, that social justice is an important aspect of maintaining security. Um, now, the, the motivation for creating the ILO was to address the potential for conflict and unrest arising out of unfair labor conditions, and I think that's still an issue today. There's also a second goal, which is a more basic humanitarian one, that workers should be um, given decent and um, humane conditions of work. And then I think the third aim, um, which is the most controversial one, is that unless states acted together um, to improve labor standards, the efforts of one state might be undercut by other less scrupulous states. Um, the ILO often sums that up as, the, as its sort of slogan, which is labor is not a commodity. So labor is an area in which you might want to eliminate competition. Um, of course, that's very controversial, and I'll say something more about that later on. Um, in 1946, the ILO became the first UN specialized agency um, with responsibility for labor matters, obviously. Um, and in 1944, the ILO issued the Declaration of Philadelphia, which reaffirms our phrase about universal and lasting peace being based on social justice. And it also carves out a role for the ILO in reviewing other um, international developments, including economic policies, in the light of its fundamental objective of ensuring social justice. And it's only recently that the ILO has begun to think about the economic dimension of its work. It's a big organization in terms of membership. It has 179 member states. Um, and its unique feature compared with other international organizations is its tripartite structure. So it's not just governments that are represented in the International Labor Conference. Um, it's also uh, trade unions and also employers' organizations. So the main decision-making body is the International Labor Conference, and that is made up of two government representatives, one union representative, and one employer representative from each member state, and they can and do vote independently of each other. Um, the conference, as I say, is the main decision-making body. There's also a governing body which meets more regularly, and the secretariat is the International Labor Office in Geneva. The director general um, plays a big role in setting the direction of the organization. Um, what does the ILO actually do? Well, it's responsible for the International Labor Code, which is a body of detailed labor law consisting of conventions, which are binding, and recommendations, which are have a more advisory status. Um, conventions have the same status as treaties. States sign up to them. Once they've ratified them, they're bound. The ILO, since its establishment, has enacted over 180 conventions, so you can imagine that that's a pretty detailed 
body of labor law um, too, de too detailed, as I'll later explain. Um, once the state has ratified a convention, it has to submit reports on compliance, and there are various mechanisms for addressing instances in which it, it's alleged that a state is not complying with a convention. So there are complaints mechanisms where other states or trade unions can um, bring a complaint against a state. But, I mean, as is typical in an international organization, the ILO doesn't really have any enforcement uh, mechanisms. It just names and shames recalc recalcitrant states and hopes for the best. It can um, recommend other forms of action, although we're not quite sure what exactly, under Article 33 of the ILO Constitution, um, and that's been used once in relation to forced labor in Burma, Myanmar. So that's basically what the ILO is. Um, now, the ILO is has been facing really difficult times recently. Um, those of us who are ILO watchers have sort of realized that there's been a bit of a crisis going on. Um, so I'm going to tell you a bit about the crisis, and then I'll tell you a bit about how the ILO has responded to it. Um, the, the big issue, I think, that, that came to a head is that a sense that the ILO was just ineffective, ineffectual, really. Um, it's good at setting standards, but it's not good at enforcing them. Um, I said there were over 180 conventions. That is an awful lot of labor law, actually. And the ILO's record on getting states to sign up and then getting them to actually comply with the obligations they've accepted is very difficult. Um, as I say, they have taken strong action on, on Burma, Myanmar, but only after most of the rest of the international community had already um, acted in that situation. There were already widespread sanctions in place. Um, the level of detail in the conventions themselves has also been a problem. So just in addition to the sheer volume of stuff that's out there, um, the, the level of detail meant that many states just felt that they couldn't comply with obligations um, of this sort of extent and reach. So um, developing countries in particular have felt that, you know, they just can't even sign up to quite a lot of, of conventions. Um, and the ILO has always tended not to prioritize. There's a sort of um, assumption that any labor violation is as bad as any other labor violation. And you can sort of see where you might get that from. But on the other hand, it's problematic in terms of actually getting people to ratify and getting people to comply. Um, if I give you an example just to, to bring that point to life a bit, um, the Minimum Age Convention of 1973 requires states to specify a minimum age for entry into employment, um, and the age has to be 15 years or above. And where a state's economic and developmental situation doesn't permit that, then there's a reduction, but it's to 14 years of age, which obviously is not that much of a difference. Um, so for states with a significant child labor problem, and these are the states that you'd want to ratify a convention on child labor, this just isn't possible. It's totally unrealistic. Um, and so what's happened more recently is that the ILO um, agreed the worst forms of child labor convention in 1999, which focuses on um, slavery, bonded labor, prostitution, pornography, and drug trafficking involving children. And this convention commanded a much wider level of support, um, and it's really been a focal point for um, projects to try and combat child labor. So the ILO is seen as good at setting lots of standards, but unfortunately rather detailed and difficult standards that not everybody can match up to, and pretty useless at enforcing them. And I think one of the things that brought this to a head, and this is my second point, is comparisons with the World Trade Organization. Once the World Trade Organization came onto the scene, actually enforcing things pretty effectively um, and commanding a lot of respect, um, the ILO came to look really quite ineffectual. Um, and that, I think, increased pressure on the ILO to show that it could actually do things in the area of enforcement. And, of course, the frustration with the ILO's inability to do things with labor rights spilled over into an attempt to get the WTO to enforce labor rights um, under Clinton's presidency. And that um, 
got into a huge political fight. It was rejected. Um, and the WTO now, it's pretty clear, is not going to get involved in that area. But um, that's the kind of problem here, that the ineffectiveness of the ILO then shifts attention to other organizations, whereas the ILO is the specialist organization for labor standards, so logically um, you'd expect the focus to, to be there. Now, globalization um, also poses difficulties for the ILO, and this was my... This was my title for the talk as a whole. Um, and I think what globalization has done is it's made labor standards seem more contentious, or maybe they were contentious all along, and it's brought that out into the open rather more. So maybe there never was much of a consensus about labor standards, but um, now it's pretty clear and pretty on the table that there isn't a consensus about labor standards. So, I mean, just to run you very quickly through the, the opposing camps, as it were, um, the trade liberal, liberalization people would argue that the best way to protect workers is to increase trade. So um, that increases the wealth of, of developed and developing countries. As wealth increases, countries will be better able to afford employment policies. Um, and imposing standards from the outset will just hinder development and hinder that process of everybody getting wealthier. Um, low labor standards on this view would be seen as a legitimate source of comparative advantage. Um, the redistribution view, the, the kind of extreme opposite at the other end, is just the idea that um, making the, the pie bigger, um, making everybody better off, won't necessarily help um, absolutely everyone because big firms, shareholders will take the biggest share of the gains made and workers won't particularly benefit from it. Um, and this is where you get arguments about the race to the bottom that states will try and lower, lower their labor standards in order to attract um, foreign direct investment. Um, and so on this view, labor rights are important to try and redistribute the gains from trade. So people in this school of thought acknowledge that labor rights are costly, but they argue that the costs are justified. That's what's good about labor rights, that they're costly and that's redistribution. Um, there's a sort of optimistic view out there. There are a few people who subscribe to this, which is that um, labor standards have positive benefits in terms of productivity, um, that workers um, who are well-treated will work harder and be more productive. And so, in fact, although labor standards may be costly, you actually recoup those costs. And there's some evidence to suggest that firms, when they're looking at where, where to invest, don't just look at the cost of labor. They look at the cost of labor compared with what that labor will produce. Um, of course, I think the truth is so often lies somewhere in between um, all of these views. Um, so probably there are some basic rights that ought to be respected regardless of a country's level of development. Um, but I think it's important to think about the exact extent of the costs that are being imposed and ways of, of combating them or mitigating them. So, for example, basic health and safety obligations often do improve productivity um, because if your workers aren't getting injured, you can keep them in work. Um, and save on your training costs. Um, dealing with something like child labor is obviously going to be more costly, but um, there's quite a lot of international aid, including from the ILO, available for addressing that problem. And it's got to be true that more advanced labor standards can be regarded as luxuries that do go with a certain level of development. So um, what I'm trying to get across really is that um, trade liberalization isn't a bad thing. Um, indeed, it's a good thing, but needs to be managed carefully. And I think that's the view that the ILO itself is now taking. Um, but you see the problem it faces. It's perceived as being ineffective and in doing its job. And then on top of that, there's a loss of consensus about what its job actually ought to be because there isn't really a consensus around those, those labor standards anymore. So I want to move on now and look at the three main responses that the ILO has, has employed to deal with these problems. <clears throat> okay, so the first of these is the ILO declaration. 
Um, this is quite a, a well-known document now, um, and I'll explain a bit about how it came into being, and then I'll say something about whether or not it's working. Um, what it does is it states that any state that is a member of the ILO um, must give effect to these four core rights. Um, by virtue simply of being a member of the ILO, regardless of whether or not the state has ratified the conventions in question. Um, although states are strongly encouraged also to ratify um, the conventions that relate to these core rights. Um, it's often linked to uh, the WTO and the Singapore Ministerial um, but, in fact, it has a much older history. It was first proposed within the ILO in 1994 um, with a host of other proposals for modernizing the ILO. But in Singapore, what happened was that President Clinton tried to get a social clause included in the GATT, which would have allowed WTO members to use trade sanctions to enforce labor rights against other WTO members. And this was roundly rejected. Um, and there was a, a ministerial statement indicating that the ILO was the proper place to deal with labor matters. Um, and the ILO, uh, I think, did rather well to respond to that. It was intended as a rebuff, really. It was intended as a sort of go-away labor standards kind of idea. But the ILO kind of drew some positive element out of it by proclaiming the declaration in 2001. Um, what's different about this? How does it meet some of the challenges we've been looking at? Well, the first thing it does is it prioritizes, okay? The ILO has not previously said that any of those 180 conventions were any more important than any of the others. And now, finally, recognition that some things are really important. Um, it expresses the priorities in terms of rights. This is also a very big shift in the ILO. Because the ILO is, um, has trade unions as, uh, as members or trade union representatives as members, it's traditionally been very focused on achieving, three, achieving things through bargaining. Um, and achieving things through bargaining isn't always associated with, with a rights approach. So expressing these in terms of rights is the ILO recognizing that, in fact, a lot of what it does has a human rights agenda and that the human rights agenda commands a greater consensus worldwide. Um, I mean, people have talked about jumping on a bandwagon here. I think that's too cynical, actually. Um, the other significant thing about the Declaration is that it requires all members to respect these rights regardless of whether or not they've ratified the relevant conventions. And it, it also breaks away from the ILO's traditional complaints mechanisms. The ILO produces now a report once every four years on the global situation with regard to each of these rights. And that's quite an interesting document generally. Um, and there's more focus on using ILO technical assistance, so using expertise, using financial aid to help states to do projects on these rights. Um, now, how has it worked? So there's been a huge debate about it, um, which has turned into one of those academic sort of spats between Philip Alston and Brian Longiel. Um, and so on the one hand, uh, Alston arguing that this is dumbing down, and Longiel arguing that this is the way to go. Um, this is not the most important question. The most important question is, they've done it now. No good arguing about whether or not they should have done it. Has it actually achieved anything? Well, um, the positive things that it's achieved, um, it's increased ratification of conventions, particularly the conventions on these four issues. It's really focused ILO technical assistance. IPEC, which is the child labor program, um, is really quite active and lively now. Um, and it's encouraged um, useful research in the shape of the, the global reports on each of these issues. And also the ILO and WTO secretariats have just produced a joint report on the uh, relationship between trade and labor. That's unthinkable probably 10 years ago. So that's a major development too. The other big, big thing that the Declaration has done is it's provided other organizations with a way of focusing their labor rights activities. So um, some of you may know about other international, uh, other international organizations that have some impact on labor, the World Bank, the IMF, for example. They use this as their statement of what the core <laughs> rights are. 
So it's provided a huge uh, resource for other organisations to use when they want to get involved in labour issues. It also features quite commonly in corporate codes of conduct, that kind of thing. Um, before I get overwhelmed with the positives, there are some downsides. Um, that this is very narrow as a core. You have to admit, there's only four rights here. It could have been a little bit broader. Um, things like health and safety are not here. I think a lot of people would have included that. Um, and now that it's been agreed, it's going to be difficult to add anything to it. Once you do your core, it's difficult to say, oh, hang on a minute, those other things were core too. Um, there's also ambiguity about the relationship between these rights and the conventions. This is a sort of devil in the detail point, really, that um, because states are bound by this stuff, even if they haven't ratified the conventions, you can't actually then say that they're bound by the conventions in, in all their, their detail because they haven't ratified them. But on the other hand, um, there's an issue about in, obviously interpreting what these things mean. The obvious place to go and do that is to go and look at the conventions, and then you get into a real ambiguity about their status. And the ILO, in fact, has tended to step back from using the conventions as a guide to interpreting these rights. It did so in the first couple of global reports, but um, got so criticized for doing that that it's kind of stopped. Um, it's unfortunate because the ILO has a lot of expertise, a lot of existing jurisprudence, and now we're all reinventing the wheel. And that's particularly troubling with other organizations. So the World Bank gets hold of this, and it starts making its own ideas up about what this stuff means. And, you know, the, they maybe aren't so well placed to, to do that. Um, of course, the ultimate test is whether or not the protection of these rights is improving worldwide. And I think I'm not in a position to answer that question um, today. But I think once we've got two cycles of these reports, we'll be in some position to comment on that. Okay, so that's the first response. I'm going to try and rescue my voice before I move on to the second one. Okay. Now, <coughs> the literature then has really focused on the, the ILO watching literature, which is a narrow area of specialist interest, has really focused on the declaration as being the ILO's big response uh, to globalization. In many respects, that is appropriate. It is the ILO's main response to globalization. But the decent work agenda is also really important. Um, and this was first set out in a report by the Director General um, to the International Labour Conference in 1999, which shows you how much influence the Director General has over um, the organization's direction. So decent work provides a new way of thinking about the ILO's fundamental aims. Um, so they've rephrased the overarching objective, which is a nice idea. But there you see um, the four strategic objectives. So rights at work, employment, social protection, and social dialogue. Um, and I'll try and explain why this came about and what those four things mean just quickly. So the Director General's concern was that the ILO's mandate is very broad, so that resulted in lots of initiatives but no overall focus. Um, and then within the ILO itself, um, different bits of the organization were more focused on, were all focused on different projects, so there was a lack of internal consensus about what the objective should be. So that weakens the ILO externally. Obviously, if you don't present a united front to the world, you haven't got much of a chance. So um, the idea was to unify the organization around these four themes. Um, the first one is promoting rights at work. I've just mentioned the declaration, and the declaration is the central component of that aspect of the ILO's work. Um, but what I think is important about this is that the declaration is seen as one out of the four things that the ILO now does. It's not the only thing that the ILO does. And we were in danger of getting into a situation where the declaration was the only thing the ILO did and the whole of everything else got completely forgotten. So rights at work are important, but they're not the only thing. Second theme is employment policy. This is a really interesting development. 
Um, traditionally, the ILO has been associated with the interests of wage earners in traditional jobs. If you have um, you know, a sort of employer focus and a union focus through the membership of your organization, then obviously you are going to focus on employed people. Um, the focus on employment policy um, gets the ILO interested, on, interested in people who are unemployed, actually, um, and trying to get more people into work. Um, and the ILO, ILO has got two main mechanisms here. Um, it's got huge capacity to conduct research, and it's going to be doing some stuff on employability, um, enterprise development, that kind of thing. The other thing the ILO is going to do is technical assistance. So it's going to do projects to promote the development of small businesses, to promote the um, development of um, employment opportunities for women, for example. So the good thing about this theme is it's getting us away from employed people and thinking about people who don't have employment opportunities. It's also quite business friendly in its outlook. Um, and there's a bit of a danger with the ILO that it can come to seem um, a rather sort of them and us kind of organization. And doing something that is about creating jobs is quite important to combat that, I think. The third theme is social protection and social security. Um, again, that's suggesting ILO interest in people who are not actually working. Um, and the Director General notes that social security systems are becoming increasingly costly to operate but they're also important because globalization makes people vulnerable to changes in their employment opportunities. So again, the ILO is going to do research and offer advice to governments on social protection systems and related issues like health and safety at work and also labor migration, um, which is a big issue for, for the ILO. Um, fourth theme is social dialogue. Um, this is, in the ILO context, used to refer to dialogue between governments, employers' organizations, and workers' organizations, and it reflects the ILO's tripartite structure. Um, and what the ILO is trying to do with this theme is to deal with the fact that globalization may leave some people feeling marginalized, feeling that they haven't got a voice, and its aim is to increase opportunities for dialogue and participation. Um, and so it's one, of the, one aspect of that is trying to help unions to modernize after a period of decline. Um, and there's also some indication of a willingness to reach out to NGOs. That's a really difficult issue for the ILO because of the trade union focus. If you've got an organization which in includes the union movement, um, there's always a concern about how do you then relate to NGOs which aren't democratic in structure and so on. Um, I think, in fact, decent work may turn out to be more significant than the declaration in terms of reinvigorating the ILO because it's broader in focus. Um, the ILO has always been concerned with workers' rights. It's tended to express that traditionally through detailed labor law rather than through a, a sort of more human rights instrument. Um, but the decent work agenda, I think, is significant for taking us into new areas like job security, uh, sorry, job creation and social security. Um, and it reflects an acknowledgement on the part of the ILO that uh, workers, people who've got jobs, will often benefit from globalization. There's a need to think about people who aren't working or won't get employment opportunities. Um, and so I think it's, it's important that the ILO is addressing uh, this broader agenda. Now, finally, and I'm quite concerned that you think I, you're going to think I've gone totally mad now. <laughs> Maritime Labour Convention. It's really important, I promise. I'll leave you to have a minute of horror. Okay, now, Maritime Labour Convention. Um, this is not as obscure as it may seem. Um, the ILO had 35 conventions out of those 180 relating to maritime labor. Uh, most of these were not ratified. It was difficult to understand, even for me, um, and in many respects overly detailed. Some of the instruments were old and out of date. There was lots of stuff about working hours for lighters and stokers, and who knows what they do. Um, so, the Maritime Labor Convention is a great instrument. It consolidates these 35 conventions into a single structure. And what it does is it provides a model for how to do 
um, international labor law for the future, and that's why it's interesting. So let me just give you a couple of key features of it. Um, now, the problem is that um, if the ILO sets, as I've been explaining, very detailed standards, a lot of states won't ratify. If it goes for setting very minimal standards, people will say it's dumbing down, it's not doing enough, and states with decent labor law won't be interested in ratifying. So the Maritime Labor Convention is clever because it's got two different types of standards. It's got binding standards and it's got aspirational standards. So um, there's Part A and Part B of the Maritime Labor Code. The Part A standards are binding. The Part B standards are non-binding. So uh, the type of mattress that you get is now an aspirational standard, um, whereas not being made to sleep at the front of a ship, which is a very dangerous place to sleep for obvious reasons, um, is, but is a binding standard. So the standards are divided up. Um, that makes it easier for states to ratify. Um, but it means that, you know, that there are um, higher standards there for states that, that can do more. Um, the final thing that's really important about it is that it builds links with other international labor organizations. So it's been negotiated with um, involvement from the International Maritime Organization, which is the UN Specialized Agency for Shipping. Um, and there is now a set of international standards for quality shipping, of which this is one. And the others are SOLAS, which is Safety of Life at Sea Convention, um, STCW, which is about standards of training for seafarers, and MARPOL, which is the Marine Pollution Convention. So this is the first time the ILO has ever spoken to anybody else, probably. So that's also a very significant um, aspect of this convention. Um, it isn't in force yet. It was only agreed in 2006, and it'll only come into force when it gets 30 ratifications, um, representing over one-third of the world's gross shipping tonnage. The point about that is that when it comes in, it'll be effective because it'll be quite widespread in its, in its impact. It's, the ratifications are going slowly at the moment, um, Liberia so far, but it's going to get better. Um, it had a lot of support going through, and I think it will be okay. And there's a lot of emphasis on actually getting compliance with the standards. Um, the main responsibility lies with the flag state through a system of certification for, for larger ships. Again, this is unusual. The ILO tends not to think about how things are actually going to get enforced, so um, that's also a significant development. Now, Maritime labor is a special case, obviously, because of its mobile and international nature. It's an obvious subject for an international labor organization to tackle. But I think many features of this convention provide a good model for other conventions for the future, particularly the consolidation and the distinction between binding and aspirational standards. So, see, it was interesting. Okay, so some conclusions. Um, Globalization, I think, has brought into the open a really important set of debates about the relationship between labor standards and trade and economic policies. Um, as labor lawyers, we can't assume universal support for our subject anymore. We have to explain how labor protections can enhance or at least not diminish economic performance, or indeed the importance of having certain specific labor protections even when they might cost money. Um, the ILO, I think, has done a good job of reinventing itself for the purposes of the, of the new world. There's more focus on job creation issues. There's more consideration for people who are marginalized and excluded, not just the traditional ILO constituency of employed workers. There's more emphasis on the human rights dimensions of labor law, which I think is a really important consensus-building um, approach. And real attempts to get states to actually ratify conventions and to comply with them, not just setting out a bunch of standards and hoping for the best. Um, and I think the ILO, in fact, many of these changes have been driven internally by the Director General and the Secretariat, um, really sort of dragging the, the states along with them a lot of the time. But what the ILO now needs is support from key players um, from key governments to actually maintain these approaches. These are, of course, the same governments that said in Singapore in the WTO context that the ILO is the appropriate place to deal with labor standards. So, you know, they need to put their money where their mouth is now and concentrate on dealing with labor standards properly through the ILO. Um, 
And I think the founding motto, um, which I've come back to as my conclusion, is still very relevant today. I mean, obviously, um, it's an oversimplification to say that, you know, if you achieve social justice, you'll achieve lasting peace and security. I'm sure that's not true. But social justice is an important part of that. And that's what I think um, gives the ILO added relevance in today's world. Thank you very much. Thanks. Whoa. <laughs> Loads of hands. I'm very happy to take questions. Go on, El. Getting a sense of perhaps a transition here, and I'm wondering if you would speak to is there, is there any move from focus on the states as being the primary actors to a more direct involvement of the ILO um, with labor issues and employment? And is it moving away from the Do you mean firms rather than states? Yes, Well, I mean, in some senses, the inherent structure of the organization is less state-focused than, than any other international organization, probably. So um, to that extent, um, there always has been a concern for um, the business perspective and the union perspective. Um, I think, I mean, there was a move. I mean, the, the ILO does have a recommendation on uh, multinational enterprises, for example, um, which is actually quite venerable now. It's 1970s. Um, and that was one effort to try and address firms directly. Um, and I think what the declaration has done is it's facilitated that a bit by identifying certain rights as core. Um, quite a lot of firms do now include that in their corporate code of conduct, that kind of thing. And so I think that the sort of prioritizing agenda has helped to focus a bit more directly on firms. But I think I wouldn't say that it's shifting completely away from states. I think it is still in the mold of a traditional international organization which addresses itself primarily to states. Yeah. Uh, whoa. In addition to the fascinating substance on the, the labor side, this seems like a study as an organization that did a wonderful job of addressing challenges and reinventing itself. And I'm always sort of interested in how organizations do that. Yeah. Do you think it was, you know, was it sheer desperation? Were there particular people who came to the fore? Was it the influence of academics? Is there anything you have noticed that you think would help explain why it did such a pretty admirable job of reinventing itself? I think that the circumstances were very important. I think um, getting such, the, the, the whole agenda with the WTO, I think, was hugely significant. So maybe um, to generalize that, it would be to say that, you know, another organization comes along, which is perceived as being a threat. And then the, there has to be some kind of reaction to that. But I think it, I mean, I would partly attribute it to specific individuals. The last couple of uh, directors general have been pretty astute, I think, as things have turned out. Um, I doubt academics have had any influence. <laughs> we just bicker about this. I mean, the, the debate has been uh, quite heated. That's right. Yeah. Jim, let's go to you rather than going around. Um, I guess I wanted to ask about notwithstanding the <coughs> how core rights Um, I think still publicity is, adverse publicity is the main strategy, and I, I think, um, you know, obviously there are limits to that as a strategy. 
um, the point about the declaration, the only way in which the ILO could get the declaration agreed was to ensure that there wouldn't be any attempt to be punitive about it, to ensure that it was always um, positive in its, and encouraging in its approach. So I think it's going to be a case of continuing, continuing with the global reports, continuing with um, the sort of naming and shaming kind of strategy. But I think, I mean, it's interesting that you draw on freedom association as the example. I mean, obviously the problem with freedom of association is that if you haven't got a democracy, you're not very likely to have freedom of association because those two things are connected. And I think it's, it's difficult for the ILO to, you know, turn countries that aren't democracies into democracies. And that, that is one of the fundamental difficulties with the, with the declaration. I mean, the other one to, to just highlight, I suppose, is the non-discrimination uh, right in the declaration. That was also very controversial. There are some countries um, which support other aspects of the declaration, but not that one. So that's also difficult. Um, and again, that's very much culturally based. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it, I suspect that it hasn't done a great deal traditionally about that, but I think part of the, the decent work agenda is going to be looking more at migration because um, obviously that's extremely important um, if people are going to move to where the jobs are, then the way that they get, they get treated when they get there is pretty significant. So it looks as if, from the, the Decent Work report, it looks as if that's going to be a significant new direction. So we'll have to wait and see whether any good comes of it. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, I think the, uh, well, what they've addressed in the report, the joint report that the secretariats have produced is um, the, the, just the sort of economics of the relationship between trade and labor standards, so whether trade liberalization um, exerts downward pressure on labor standards, that kind of thing. So is there empirical evidence for the race to the bottom, that, that kind of area. So I think it's an attempt to sort of smooth over relations a little bit after the whole Singapore debacle. But um, it's obviously a very difficult issue. I mean, what people, what academics spend a lot of time looking at is, I mean, since this, the idea of having a social cause in the WTO has pretty much been blown out of the water, what people now look at is the extent to which a state could still um, use trade sanctions against another WTO member and invoke the exceptions in Article 20 of the GATT in order to do that. And there's a long and complex literature about the extent to which Article 20 might permit that. And then that debate gets replicated in other areas um, because obviously um, public procurement, there are similar provisions in the GATT government procurement agreement. Um, and also um, reductions in uh, tariff barriers for developing countries. Um, the EU's GSP scheme was recently the subject of a dispute in the WTO um, for the way in which it applied its, its drug trafficking controls. That also contains labor incentives. So um, the, there are lots of areas in which the WTO may restrict states' ability to do things about labor in other countries. And so even if the WTO has sort of explicitly decided that it doesn't want to deal with those issues, it may not have much choice because they're going to keep coming up. So I think the key thing then is for the ILO to be able to present the labor issues in a way which is helpful to the WTO. I mean, there's going to be a real question if the WTO is having to decide a case in which a state has used trade sanctions on a labor issue that it's getting appropriate advice from people who know what the labor issues are um, when it's deciding that. So, I mean, I think that that's the real agenda there at the moment. We're waiting to see what, what else will emerge in terms of case law, I suppose. Yeah. 
mean, sort of following up on that, has there been a discussion or was there a discussion ever about just simply folding the ILO into the WTO? No, I don't think it ever went that far. It was... Yeah. Um, so you're thinking w, WTO and had some, they were given some cover because one of the problems was here in quotation labels that there was a day or a Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting that because, I mean, the ILO since 1944 has had as an explicit part of its mandate reviewing the labor impact of economic and financial policies of other international organizations, which it's never done, um, or at least not explicitly or not in a sort of aggressive sort of way. Um, so that obviously envisages some kind of you know, overarching role for the ILO in those in those issues. And I suppose what you're suggesting is that having the WTO looking at it from the other perspective, having them having more explicit involvement. But folding the two into each other, I think, has never been suggested. And I, I rather suspect that that's pretty unthinkable from both sides, actually. I think from the ILO side, that would be very concerning. Well, the social clause idea that Clinton was putting forward was to enable states to use trade sanctions to enforce labor rights. And I think the implicit assumption was that it would be the ILO that would be setting the labor standards and possibly also having some involvement in deciding whether or not they'd been violated. And so the WTO was just going to come in at the enforcement level because it's seen as a powerful, or at least not it seen as a powerful enforcer, but that route of trade sanctions is seen as a powerful enforcer. But having said that, of course, there's also debate about whether or not trade sanctions are a good way to go about enforcing labor rights at all. So there's another, there's another whole dimension to that discussion. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I wasn't seeking to do that quite explicitly because I, I don't think it does compare. Um, I mean, just, just to clarify one point, the ILO does have an adjudication mechanism and that can involve a state complaining against another state, but it won't be about its national interests because you're, you're always complaining about what that state is doing with its own labor force, which may affect your national interests in some senses, but, but also, may, you know, it's more, it's more indirect. Um, but... Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, uh, the ILO is, is never going to be the WTO of labor, I don't think. Um, but I think also, I mean, that translates down into the national level, doesn't it? I mean, how significant is a country's labor ministry ever as compared with, you know, whoever is running the economy? Um, I mean, certainly <laughs> from the UK perspective, our... Department of Trade and Industry, which actually does labor stuff, is not that important. Um, so, I mean, it's always going to be um, a smaller part of the agenda. Um, the ILO, I think, is never going to match up to the kind of enforcement and sanctions that the WTO has. But I, I suppose what I'd want to say is that it's making the best of the opportunities it has and the support it gets 
from governments. So it's doing the best it can under trying circumstances, I suppose. Yeah. Um, from my work, I've realized that the ILO seems to have a renewed focus too on, on the informal economy. Mm. And I was wondering how that fit into you know, some of the, the core rights we're discussing, because you can have two ideas about that. You can have the idea that you should support workers who do not actually have formal jobs, but maybe um, fighting against a government that's try to overregulate them into unemployment, or you can have the argument that it's actually not decent work. It's, it's often uh, a poverty trap, and maybe the ILO sees that as something they hope will go away. I mean, what's your take on how, um, how the ILO encourages and regulates that side of the problem? I think that's a difficult issue, um, and because it's focused on governments and on uh, telling governments what to do, then inherently governments regulate the formal official labour market. And so I suppose in some senses that, need, that leads to a certain amount of, of neglect. But quite a lot of the ILO's research work does seem to be focused on informal economy issues. So it's, it's clearly aware of them as an organisation. But yeah, I think in the same way that a national government would face that dilemma, it also faces that dilemma. It's an interesting area. Okay. One more? One more? Oh, I, I was just curious what countries have been supportive of the ILO in terms of the people. <laughs> I have to be very... Liberia <coughs> supporting everyone else not. Um, well, that's difficult because, I mean, obviously it varies according to what the, what the agenda is. Um, and you get interesting alliances building up, of course, because of the tripartite nature of the organisations. So sometimes you'll get the sort of the worker representatives ganging up with a certain group of governments against the employer representatives and another group of governments, and that tends to be how it, how it plays out. But the politics of it are quite interesting because of the tripartite structure. Well, thank you, Anne, for a very interesting talk on a subject that I know we haven't had her before. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit conscious of that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very nice to have you here. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.